I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. I'm joined now in the studio by Slava Rubin, the co-founder and chief business officer of Indiegogo, one of the most popular crowdfunding sites online. So Slava, thanks for coming in. Exciting to be here. All right. First things first, I want to just point our listeners to your website, and you've got a great name. So Indiegogo. It's kind of like the independent spirit is indie, and with the independent spirit, anything can happen. And then GoGo is fun and active. You have those two things crashing together and magic. All right. Slava, give us the elevator pitch for Indiegogo. We're the world's marketplace for funding. So you have an idea, you need money, you come to Indiegogo. Give me an example of what I might see on the site today if I were to go. It could be anything. I mean, we launched in January 2008, and uh, it could be a cause. It could be a nonprofit. It could be a movie. But where we're really seeing a lot of growth and a lot of focus is in products and hardware and electronics and all kinds of entrepreneurship. So you could see something like a Pilot, which Pilot is a pair of uh, earbuds that you put into your ears, and they actually get connected to software, which automatically helps you translate as people talk real time. So it's literally like straight out of Star Trek, universal uh, translator type of stuff. Or you can find a uh, um, electric bike, uh, something like uh, uh, Monday Bikes, where it has the power of a motorcycle, but has the compliance of a bicycle, and it can you know go 40 miles an hour uh, on an electric bike. And uh, we have all kinds of things. It's uh, super exciting. Very it is super exciting. And I, I, it's quite, quite addictive to, to browse. I want to circle back on Pilot because I, I happened to notice that one today and thought it was really amazing. But walk us through the mechanics of how it works. So let's say I've got an idea for something like a, a Star Trek real-time translator. H- how, how do I get on Indiegogo and how does it work? Yeah, so it's super simple, actually. Um, we're a completely open platform. And it's free to use. So we have no application process. It's kind of like YouTube. Mm-hmm. So if you have something you'd like to post, you come up and put up your idea. You can put up your idea in minutes or you can spend months to really actually put some significant effort behind it. And uh, you post a, uh, a, you create a page kind of like you would an eBay page or a Facebook page or uh, like a YouTube experience. And so you put up a video probably, you set a goal, let's call it $100,000. You put some content in there to explain your story. Often you'll provide perks. Perks are things that you'll offer products or services as a trade in return for different levels of funding. And off you go. You start you launch and you look for uh, promotion, most likely to get your first backers or funders to come from your own inner circle. And what I mean by that is your friends, your family, your potentially your customers there you have, your fans, your followers the people that are tracking you on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat. And uh, those people start to fund you first in the first few days, and slowly you'll gain momentum. And because of that, Indiegogo, the algorithms will kick in, and we'll start putting you on the homepage or pop up further on search or into the newsletter, into the media. And before you know it, the snowball is rolling, and you're pilot, and you tried to raise a hundred grand or two, and now you're at $2.5 million, and you're off to the races. Yeah, um, hate to be the smarty pants. They're three point seven million as of today. There you go, three point <laughs> seven million corrected by the show host. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty amazing. And 
And what typically, I mean, you, 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 Indiegogo is, is very flexible. They're, you're flexible in terms of the kinds of projects and the kinds of offers. But, but what's the most common quid pro quo? What do I get for my money typically as a, as a contributor? I mean, you're typically, there's, there's four reasons why anybody would fund anything in life, not on Indiegogo in life. Mm-hmm. Number one is because they care about the person or the cause. Mm-hmm. Often that's a donation. Um, so you're not getting much in return, mm-hmm. let's say. Number two is you paid for your shoes probably that you're wearing. Most people listening, if they're wearing shoes, probably paid for them. So you gave a certain amount of money and you got a product in return. You got shoes. Some people want to participate in the experience and some people want profit. They want to give $1 and get $5 back. Mm. And we can talk about that profit portion because we just launched equity crowdfunding recently. But since we launched in January 2008 until just a few weeks ago, it was only those first three options that were possible. And a lot of people gravitate towards one of those three. Mm. Sometimes one campaign will have all three types of versions as to why somebody would fund. In terms of the perks portion, uh, maybe at $25, you might be getting a T-shirt or Mm -hmm. a hat. At $100, you might be getting some sort of um, simpler device. And now you're starting to get into more expensive things. You're getting a $500 um, you know, electric bike, or you're getting the Canary security device, which was funded and started on Indiegogo. I mean, now they're doing massive revenue and all around uh, households around America. And that was, you know, started on Indiegogo in terms of preliminary funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I probably, I backed a few projects on Indiegogo. My favorite one was called, see if you remember this product, it was called Bug Assault. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> You're going way back. That's, well, that's like uh, 2011. I don't know. It was the coolest thing ever. I, it's it, the coolest thing ever now. It, it, okay, so let me tell let me tell our listeners what it is, and then you tell me what's happened to it if you know. But bug assault, which is spelled bug, uh, salt s a l t, is a shotgun that shoots salt at flies. So it's a fly swatter that shoots. Well, it's an air compression gun. Okay, right. So it uses air to shoot salt. To shoot salt, uh, like a shotgun. It exactly. is a salt shotgun. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. One of the funniest things that's like ever happened to me is I was hanging out in the Hamptons, totally just chilling out on an afternoon with my, at that time, girlfriend, now wife, hanging out with some other friends. And it's early evening, so it's not quite dinner time. And we're walking down one of the main streets And this restaurant is closed, but we're looking at potential options as to where we want to eat dinner. And we looked in towards this one restaurant and there was this waiter or some sort of person using some sort of ridiculous thing, shooting something at something. So it's like this yellow device. And Mm. I say, whoa, that's a bug assault. Ah. And all these friends and my uh, girlfriend is like, what are you talking about? And everybody's looking at this guy inside this restaurant like he's bananas. And I'm like, that's a bug assault. That was funded on Indiegogo. The yeah. reason that exists yeah. is because it was funded on Indiegogo. And this person is using that thing to kill flies. Everybody's like, no way. They're not using a gun to kill flies. So we go knock on the restaurant door. It's closed, right? Because yeah. they're not open for dinner yet. And it was like, excuse me, um, what is it that you're doing here? And he's like, oh, what do you mean? He's like, no, no, the thing in your hands. Like, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm killing some flies. And it like, all my friends started trying to practice using the bug yeah, assault. Yeah, it yeah. was an, a hilarious experience. That's a really great example of early Indiegogo where the video was quite raw. Mm-hmm. It was uh, not high production. And you really have innovation here where I can see why most retail outlets or most buyers would look at this concept and be like, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. I'm not spending my shelf space or my capacity of inventory for anything to, to even allow to think about this. Right. 
and they tried to just raise, I think it was like 15 grand or something just so they can, you know, manufacture a few dozen or a hundred of these bug assaults in China. Next thing you know, they're at half a million bucks. And one of my coworkers, it's literally still today, his favorite product. He uses it all the time. Yeah. Well, we've just helped their Christmas sales, believe me. <laughs> uh, you know, the best thing about that video, you said it was raw, but I still remember it. They had a block of jello. Totally. And they, they shot a bug on this block of jello, and the jello just quivers Ooh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was a beautiful little bit of video, even if, though it was raw. I remember it to this day. But it was low production. Low production. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. that's like very early Indiegogo. Yeah. But let's talk about, about that entrepreneur. What's, what's his motive for being on Indiegogo? He, as I recall, he was a, he isn't like from New Zealand or something. He was, he was, he was, a, he wasn't in the plugged into Silicon Valley. So well, was, I think you nailed it right yeah. there, which is most of the world and in even most of America, it's very hard to get access to capital to yeah. be connected to the right people. Most likely the people listening to this show are already three steps ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So if you're thinking about the average Joe or Jane, they have an idea. And what are you going to do? Max out your credit cards, take your funding from your children's school. Like, where are you going to mm -hmm. uh, find that capital? And I do believe that he was already rejected through several paths. And he was like, yeah, Indiegogo. I mean, there have been some interesting creative ideas on Indiegogo. Why is mine any better or worse? Like, I deserve a fair shot. And he does. And next thing you know, he got massive funding. If you would have just done it by votes or based on the buyers that are at these retail outlets, he never would have had a chance. Everybody would have said, this is ridiculous. So the fact that he literally was given the chance to fail. Yeah. So given the chance to fail. Yeah. So he was given the chance to fail. And because of that reason, he succeeded. Yeah. So it's like please just give me a chance. Just give me a chance begging with the buyer. But you guys actually let me let them give them a chance by going to the consumer. And right? very often yeah. they won't, it won't work out. Yeah. But yeah. even the chance to fail is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Uh, but, but let's just take, let's just follow that example. The very standard, the, the most common pattern it strikes me is there, they have a product and I, if I pay, I think it was a hundred bucks, whatever it was, 50 bucks, something Less like that. that. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah I, I, I would get one. Right. So I'd get the price. So it's, it has, in some cases, an element of pre-order. Right. Th that was yeah. the second. That's the no, second category. No, yeah. And that's really one that really gravitates towards a lot of people. A lot of people enjoy the idea of I'm getting something faster than others, yeah. cheaper than others, yeah. or I'm a little bit uh, more innovative than others in terms of the water cooler talk. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are enjoying that, as you call it pre-order experience yep. where you're ahead of the rest right. of the market. But I got to I got to tell you I'm not actually a despite being a product designer, I'm not really a gadget guy. I wouldn't have bought that on the shelf of Toys R Us. I bought it. I I kind of did want to just be part well, of the process. Yeah. I think yeah. you saw the story too, yeah. right? Yeah. You you were part of the video yeah. where you saw who the entrepreneur was, you got to participate in the passion and then you're like, yeah, I want to be involved in this. So yeah. that's one of the reasons that people get involved, this yeah. participation. Okay. And then just to f circle, f finish up on the logistics. So I've got Bug Assault. I make a video. I make a page. I post my campaign. Uh, how, how long does it run and when do I get the money? How does that all, how does that all work? Yeah, you yeah. can run the campaign as long as you want. Okay. We suggest 30 to 60 days. Uh -huh. um, you run the campaign. You know, Somebody like Bug Assault, he'll tap his friends and family and fans first, that momentum will start to roll a little bit. And now he'll really start be tipping the algorithms on Indiegogo to start getting a lot of exposure. Uh, he then raises the half a million dollars. We send the money at the end. It goes right into your bank account. Yeah. And uh, then depending on what he promised as to when those perks would be delivered, 
it's up to him then to then fulfill based on those promises. And often uh, a perks-based campaign like that, where it's in advance of it being manufactured, you typically are looking three to 12 months out before you're receiving the product. Yeah. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. Yeah. And there is a buyer beware here. I mean, there's a chance that this never happens. There's a chance. It depends on what stage the product is in. Yeah. Some are at the idea level, so there's a lot of steps that they need to go through. Some are actually jumping on board on Indiegogo literally a month before they're launching in retail. So mm -hmm. there's absolutely no chance it's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Like it's 100% guaranteed. And it's now the whole spectrum as to where these companies are launching. And we provide the stage on Indiegogo so you have some clarity ah, into that yeah. visibility. Back when you did a bug assault, we didn't provide that stage. Yeah, it was just one stage. It Correct. was just, yeah, yeah. And, and for those companies, I, I, I get... I get when the the bug assault entrepreneur, this is sort of the last ditch effort to raise the funding. Does has tried other ways, but for somebody who's already going into the store, it's it, you know they, they they aren't really doing this to raise money per se, right? Is it part of their marketing campaign? What's exactly? The yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we have examples like uh, Misfit. So Misfit, Sunny Vu, great entrepreneur. He uh, had the former CEO of Apple, John Scully, as one of his partners, yeah. already had VC funding. Yeah. Um, he definitely didn't need the money from Indiegogo. What he was looking for was some market validation for right. his product. He was looking to test and research. He was looking for some pure marketing and exposure. Mm -hmm. You know, That company goes on to raise the Misfit Shine, mm -hmm. the activity tracker. They raised a little under a million dollars in 2012, mm -hmm. and last year they go on to sell their company for mid $200 million, again, starting on Indiegogo, yeah. which is pretty cool. So it's de very different than Bug Assault yeah. when you have Sunny Vu, um, or you have other companies. Uh, there's a product called Zero One, literally the number Zero One, which is this really interesting instrument for measurement. Mm. They're trying to, the company is looking to create the new version, uh, the new tool set of the future as to where tools are going as opposed to the old Black & Decker kind of tools. Mm -hmm. um, so they already had retail partnerships and for the one month before they went retail, they launched an Indiegogo because they were looking for that pop and that promotion that happens as part of a campaign with us. Yeah. Slava, take us back to the beginning. Where did the Indiegogo come from? So we came up with the idea in 2006, mm -hmm. um, the fall of 2006. It was Eric, Danae, and myself. So we were three co-founders. We all had a mutual frustration of trying to raise money using the internet. Eric was on the board of a theater company. Danae was working as an investment banker and trying to help with entrepreneurs and films to raise capital. And my dad died uh, when I was a kid. And 10 years later in 2005, I started my own charity to raise money for cancer research. Now, we were sharing our frustrations of how hard it was to use what we thought was we were advanced and technologically savvy, things like MySpace, things like email, things like PayPal, to really be able to raise money through our friends and family, through all these advanced tools. And it, we struggled, all of us. So we had this very naive concept, which is if YouTube, which was very new at the time, I wasn't owned by Google yet, uh, is doing this democratization of content thing. It's quite interesting. Anybody can put up any content and people can watch it if they want. And eBay was already quite established as democratizing this auction concept. Mm -hmm. Why is it that access to capital is all about the gatekeeper, knowing the right investment banker, knowing the right VC, knowing the right uh, loan person, knowing the right person at the grant institutions? Why not just maybe use that ultimate democratization tool, which is the internet, to very naively create a marketplace. Hey, if you have an idea and you want money, just if people want to give you money, they give you money. Mm -hmm. 
And that was the inception of the idea. We researched it through the, uh, the end of 2006 through, through 2007. We wanted to start right away with equity as one of the options, but we ran into regulatory issues associated. Meaning that people could, could invest in companies. We wanted to yeah. be able to allow yeah. people to invest, right. literally, right. a financial investment right away. Uh, but going back to the Securities Act of 1933, that wasn't allowed. We learned about that as we started doing our research. So we said, okay, well, investing would be cool, but just because people won't be able to invest, there's probably still a path towards doing this. We'll figure out investments sometime in the future. Mm. So we came up with this perks model. And uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, crowdfunding, I mean, crowdfunding, the word didn't exist. Right. And for all intents and purposes, we helped start the industry. Yeah. Uh, and then many companies have followed, and it's been very interesting to see how it's yeah. all gone. Amazing. So so our, many of our listeners will have heard of, of some of your competitors. The, the most famous of your competitors is probably Kickstarter. So where is, where's Kickstarter in the timeline? And, and so how, launched- how are you differentiated? We launch in January 2008. They launch uh, middle of the following year, mm-hmm. so like plus minus 18 months. Mm-hmm. Um, and how are we differentiated? I mean, we've always been very different. Uh, they've been very much a application curation, uh, more of a magazine approach. And we've been much more about trying to create YouTube for money, which is algorithms and scalable and no judgment, mm-hmm. where it's really about uh, letting the people decide what should rise yeah. to the top. Separate from that, uh, we're very much about providing end-to-end service and how you define where you get placed on the site is not about knowing the right person, but really about um, you know optimizing your mm-hmm. reach and the algorithms really kicking in. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're very much different. Uh, they've been sticking to their knitting on uh, their core kind of creative class, uh, and we're really empowering the entrepreneur, helping them from inception of idea all the way through distribution. And now, like we mentioned, moving into equity crowdfunding or through major partnerships and um, really becoming much more of all-inclusive experience. Yeah, as I remember, I've I've run a a couple of campaigns on on Kickstarter. And and as I remember, the differentiation, uh, uh, Indiegogo allows a wider range of projects, right? So if I want to do a documentary uh, or start a nonprofit or something, I can do that on Indiegogo, correct? Yeah, everything. Yeah, and then the other differences I recall is there's no- And we're totally global. And there's no minimum threshold, right? Or there's no, you you get everything you you raise. Is that right on Indiegogo or not? You have the option of how you want to set it. So you can set it as fixed funding, which means you only get the money if you hit your target. Or you can set it as flexible funding, which is you get the money no matter how much you raise. Mm. And you set that up front, and then it's transparent to the funder. Uh, on the on the subject of competition, is it, in your opinion, is this a winner take all market? I mean, there's only one eBay basically. Is there going to be just one? You know, it's a very interesting question. I think that's a very business school point of view on it. Um, I think it's very easy to use that winner take all concept because people will say eBay winner take all, mm-hmm. but I'll argue if they won it all, why is Amazon crushing them? well they they it was winner take all is a two-sided market so the question is winner take all is what size is the market that you're talking about yeah yeah so um the short answer for me is no it's not yeah i think winner take all is a business school concept Mm -hmm. i think that there's very 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 few markets that have such massive network effects Mm -hmm. that it really is winner take all Mm -hmm. um and i think access to capital the issue the problem is so big and so global that 
um, I have a hard time believing there's going to be one company that's dominating all access to capital yeah. across the world. Yeah, I mean, this is a good insight. Let's just underscore it here a bit. I love I love you pushing back on this point, Slava, because you'd say, what's the ultimate? What's the ultimate? Uh, network-driven, winner-take-all market would be social media. Uh, does anyone remember MySpace? You used the, term, used the brand a little earlier in the right. conversation, but MySpace seems like it went away in like a month once there was a, an, an, an alternative, a better alternative. So I think we underestimate the switching costs for consumers sometimes, and, and that's one reason perhaps today these markets are not as natural monopolies as you might expect right them to be. and yeah. even facebook i mean i think they're a great example of massive network effect but then again snapchat's still on fire yeah right? exactly and people still use twitter yeah right and yeah. so it's all depends on how you want to look at the winner take all market yeah now having said that a a standard problem in platforms like indiegogo is you, you gotta you gotta get supply and demand in equilibrium and that's it, the hardest problem yeah so so if if there's no if there are no funders or no products, I mean you got to keep this thing in equilibrium. How how do you how do you how do you get to that? How do you get enough stuff and enough transactions that it's an interesting place to be? Yeah, yeah I mean that's the secret, right? Which is um, trying to figure that out. Trying to create a one-sided commerce experience is one thing; it's got its own challenges. Yeah, but figuring out a two-sided marketplace it's really tricky because, like you're saying, the equilibrium constantly needs to be there. It's kind of from Ferris Bueller's Day Off where there's that scene where he talks into the uh, into the camera right after uh, Ferris is using his friend's dad's car and he crashes it. But before he crashes it, he looks into the window, into the camera and he says, you know, if you have the means, I highly recommend you get one. <laughs> which it's kind of the same thing, which is if you have the means, I highly recommend you make a marketplace. But it kind of says like, do you have the means to make yeah. it? It's probably the best business model out there in terms of defensibility. Yeah. But the time and effort required to actually successfully create that marketplace beyond the tipping point is so hard. Well, how did you, you guys do it? Yeah. So our approach, uh, I'd like to say that I knew exactly we were going to do it right. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, then again, we probably struggled for three years along the way and we just kept on persevering. But our approach was we had to pick one side to focus on. Mm -hmm. You always have to start somewhere, mm -hmm. right? Even if you're going to keep it at equilibrium. So we could start on the supply side or the demand side. And the supply side, in this situation, I'll call the entrepreneurs right. and the demand side being the backers. And the ultimate win, the gold mine, is being backer-driven, right? Being demand-driven. Right. So think about it as like Uber, right? right? Uber is winning because they are demand-driven. The customers want uh, liquidity I in see. cars. So that's the ultimate win. Right. But it's very hard to massively adopt demand quickly, otherwise known as like pets.com. So pets.com tried to buy demand, mm -hmm. right, as much as possible, Super Bowl commercials, all this stuff. But it's very expensive because you don't know who they are, where they are. So you just need to have to spend a ton of money to try to build that demand. Obviously, if you have all the demand in the world, supply will come running. Right. Uh, but it's hard to meaning, build. Meaning if you had a bunch of people standing in a store with their wallets out, exactly. you'd have product. But getting all those people waiting. When there's no product in the store. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so it's yeah, very hard and expensive. Yeah, yeah. So on the opposite side, supply, um, they're very keen um, to be exposed to demand and they're easier to target. Um, so they're not as quickly of a slam dunk if you get a bunch of supply because then you need to figure out how to get demand in. For us, what we were thinking is we want to get kind of like a hub and spoke approach, which mm -hmm. is the hub is supply, is the entrepreneur. And we need to believe that we can bring the first person of demand 
they need to bring the first person. Ah, interesting. You have right. to bring your own customers. Or you have to bring your own, uh, yeah, basically. You have own. to bring your own demand, the right. first people. The first people, yeah. Right? So the trick for us was convincing the first people to be willing to come into a marketplace that would bring them no demand. Mm. <laughs> even though we told them we would bring them demand. Yeah. And what we did was, even though there were no demand lined up, we spent our own effort and time and money to actually create demand for them not the marketplace. Yeah. But then what happens as soon as you get some demand to come in off of that first piece of supply, now you catch them into your web. Yeah. So now you have some people of demand just floating there waiting for the next person of supply to come in and say, "Hey, do you have any demand for me?" Right. "Oh yeah, I got this demand that came in yesterday." Yeah. They're just waiting for the next hot thing. Yeah. And you just keep on building. Yeah, so you get people who saw Bugasol, then they want to go see what the next thing is. Exactly. And, and so they're, in some ways, your customer. They're the, they're a key part of your So the key yeah. was to create the infrastructure yeah. as how we set it up. So right away after capturing the backer, mm -hmm. we can then turn it around and then show that backer new opportunities of supply, Yeah. which is all about the product experience. Yeah. Slava, I wanted to ask you a question about what can go wrong. And... In, in particular, let's go look at, just circle back on an example you used before the break, which was this pilot translator, which is a really, the promise is quite remarkable that I have this earpiece that does real-time uh, translation. But I, and they raised almost $4 million. But I gotta say, I looked at that and I thought, uh, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? And so what, what can go wrong here? And, 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 and what, what have you seen go wrong in these, in these kinds of campaigns? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, entrepreneurship is hard. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's something like 95% of restaurants in New York City will close within two years. Yeah. Uh, and none of those entrepreneurs go in ill-intended, right? They right. plan on having a good restaurant, and none of the investors want them to close. So entrepreneurship is hard no matter what. So you should expect a lot of failure uh, along the way because if it was easy, it'd be easy, mm -hmm. but often failure leads to innovation through learning. Um so a lot of results will be positive, but there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And in Pilot's case, hardware is hard. Yeah. Right? Entrepreneurship is hard enough as it is. Right. Hardware is hard on top of it. Right. Um, so what can go wrong? Well, uh, they could not understand their manufacturing costs, their delivery times. They could be bad at picking their partners, who they work with, their suppliers. Um, you know, there could be internal struggles in terms of uh, team dynamics. There's an endless list of things that could go wrong. The, uh, the key here is why are you getting involved? And if you as the backer um, are looking for the perfect fifth generation product and want it packaged nicely and want to use it out of the box tomorrow after you bought it um, you know, this morning, so Indiegogo is probably not for you. Right. Buy an iPhone 7. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Go into the store right, and buy it or you know, just get your... Uh, Amazon Prime now uh, shipped to you something. And if you want to be a little bit more ahead of the curve, if you want to be a little bit more connected to what it is you're engaging with or purchasing, if you want to feel like you are influencing the future and changing what it is that we end up using as a, as a, a, a market, uh, if you want to potentially get it significantly cheaper than when it's going to be at retail, now all of a sudden you're talking more of like the Indiegogo experience. Mm -hmm. And with that comes risk, mm -hmm. right? And there's, uh, for all those extra benefits, you have some volatility there as part of the risk. So 
I think it's a very interesting experience. And definitely every now and then there are some full on failures. Um, most of them are, uh, almost all of them are not ill intended. We have, uh, virtually no fraud. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there is entrepreneurship is difficult. Hardware is hard. And there are things that get delayed. Uh, you know, instead of taking three months, it takes one year. Uh, instead of communicating every week or month, like they should be, maybe they go a little dark because they're so heads down and really struggling. And, uh, Indiegogo tries to do its best to create as positive an experience as possible yeah. to maintain those updates, those communication. And plus we have partnerships in place to improve the entrepreneur's experience in, in the long run that helps the backer. Um, so it's a super exciting dynamic market and, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a nice challenge to the, the business school, the academic view of the consumer, because the academic view of the consumer, the homo economicus, right, is always make the rational purchase decision. And of course, at some level, when anybody gives you money, they're doing it because they want to. But, but what I think you guys have done is, is to reveal that people are interested in participating in movements. They're interested in being part of something. They're willing to put their money up against something, even if it isn't a strictly rational economic transaction. And that, to me, is is one of the most surprising things about crowdfunding. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, we do lots of surveys and we have lots of data. So, I mean, more people will say that I want to see this product come to life than they'll say I want to get this product on time. Yeah, yeah. That's weird, right? Yeah, it's weird. So that's obviously a bias based on the people that have funded. Yeah. Right. So there's people that haven't funded. Like, I don't care about that. But it's interesting that that's part of the thinking as to why they have funded. And at a macro level, you know, Edison ha like failed like a hundred times. Right. Before like the hundred and first time he actually got the light bulb to work. So in my opinion, that first time he failed was super valuable because mm -hmm. it got him to learning for the second time. And the second time got him to the third time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I do agree that there are things that don't end up as positive as anybody, as everybody would have wanted with some of the actual products, but that failure is super positive mm -hmm. for me in the long run of innovation. Mm -hmm. Because if all we were willing to put up on Indiegogo was really high gloss, well-finished iPhone 7s, um, there'd be a lot of happy customers for iPhone 7s, but things would get pretty stale pretty quickly, and I think that's a sad world. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the world. Uh, we we your original vision, probably naive, was that you could get consumers to to provide the investment to support these companies. But since then, the world has changed. So talk a little bit about what's changed in the regulatory environment. Maybe a little bit about a little bit of context and 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 where the new laws have come from as well. Yeah, yeah I mean, this is a massive arc, right? So. Uh, 1932 is the last time that in America any random person can invest in any random idea. Mm -hmm. So what you have back then is a stranger walking down the street, knocking on people's doors in Maryland, and it says, hey, Grandma, in Maryland, I have a piece of oil in Oklahoma. Why don't you give me $500, and I'll make sure that you may end up making 2500 a year later. Grandma's naive, not thinking too hard. She thinks he's a nice salesperson, gives the guy $500. He takes the 500 forget the oil, forget Oklahoma. He goes to the beach never responds back, never follows up. This is a long time ago, pre-internet, pre-discovery, pre-transparency. All grandma had now is no money and a lot of upsetness. So she goes, what does she do? She goes, talks to our local um, civil servant right. and says, hey, senator, hey, mayor, hey, congressperson, hey, whatever. I'm really upset. Don't have this happen to me again. 
So enough people got told and they want to keep their jobs. Right. So to keep their jobs, they want to have their uh, people in their community happy. So they end up creating the Securities Act of 1933, which creates the SEC and other things. Now you have accredited investor rules, which means you have to have over a net worth of a million dollars or a salary of over $250,000 to be able to invest in these private opportunities right. that are now not publicly sourced through solicited through SEC approval. That goes on for 80 years. Right. And, and, let, me, and let me interrupt for just a second. So just to contrast it, a, a so-called going public is, is is going through a lot of hurdles, a lot of regulatory hurdles, in order to be allowed to sell shares to the public, to anyone, to grandma. Exactly. But, but any company that isn't public... It had been subject to these, still is subject to these these regulations. Right. And if you weren't public, it means that the only people that were allowed to even look at the investment opportunity were the accredited investors, which is less than 2% of America. Yeah. yeah. So 98% of America has been left on the sidelines right. the whole time for 80 years. Right. So then what happened? So then we launched Indiegogo. The rules are still the same. In 2011, we have a campaign on Indiegogo called the crowdfunding campaign to change the crowdfunding law. Mm. It's quite meta. It's get funded. They then put together a petition to send it to Congress. Then in April of 2012, uh, they actually passed the law, which is the Jobs Act. And we have on stage with President Obama, one of our customers signing the actual act. And, you know, we're there. It's very exciting. It has six parts to the Jobs Act to try to increase velocity of capital. And one of those is Title Three, and Title Three is to create these equity crowdfunding portals to allow for portals and companies like Indiegogo to be able to offer equity investments to anybody in America. You don't have to be accredited. Mm -hmm. It took years, four years, for finally the regulatory bodies and the SEC to finally give in and to finally get it implemented. Yeah, they weren't too. They, they, the, this was an, a, this was passed in Congress, right? But it had to be implemented by a bureaucracy that took four years. Four years. Yeah. yeah. yeah but it just happened in May, right? It, just, it just finally got implemented. Yeah. And uh, we tell didn't. Us how, tell us how it works. So, to, under Title Three, what are the rules and who, how, how much can you raise from who, who can invest, those sorts of things? So, under Title Three, as an entrepreneur, you can raise up to $1 million per year mm -hmm. from unaccredited investors, which means from anybody mm -hmm. in America. Um, and you have to get approved uh, through the SEC via a equity crowdfunding portal mm -hmm. that is approved as well. I see. So the so in effect, a third party, these portals of which there w there will are and will be several, and we are one, for example. Yeah. So they're they're what are approved. First, the, the portal is approved. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the portal has to shepherd the offering company to be I approved see. by the SEC. And can I invest my retirement fund, my entire net worth? How's that? So on the entrepreneur side, it's up to $1 million right. they can raise. On the investor side, based on your salary, um, the max that you can invest per year is $10,000 mm -hmm. or $2,000, depending on how much you make okay. per year. Mm -hmm. You can put any money you want from anywhere you want, but up to $10,000 right. per year. On the theory that that grandma can only lose $10,000. And if grandma has a very low salary at most $2,000. Yeah. Okay. But this is all self-reported. Yeah, I see. So so that really... Uh, just just got started in May. Just got started. Yeah, and how's it going? You guys are in. You guys are are playing now in this space, right? So we just launched three weeks ago. Oh wow! Yeah, um, and it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. We launched with four offering companies. We're four for four already. All four of them have hit their targets, and they're off to the races. 
Uh, we have purposely had a diverse set of offerings. We have a hardware device called Play Impossible, which is a ball that has sensors inside of it connected to your mobile um, that tracks all the data of how it is that you're playing with the ball. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one company that's up there. So they've already passed their threshold and they continue to raise more. We have another called uh, Republic Restorative, which is a DC-based distillery and restaurant. And it's a female-founded and run distillery, the first of its kind. Uh, super cool since it's a local play. We have Crowfall, which is a major game from a gaming company. And then we also have BeatStars, which is a marketplace for beats. Uh, it's an online company having some uh, significant revenue growth. Uh, they're doing over $2 million of revenue. Um, and they offer people the opportunity to buy beats because many musicians, they come up with the songs, but they don't have the beats to go with the song. Now, when you say beats, you do not mean the headphone brand. You mean you mean the rhythm track? Exactly. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of people that come up with songs, yeah. and they wish that somebody would write the, the rhythm track, as yeah. you're saying. Here yeah. it's called beats. Beats. Yeah. And they just don't know anybody, and there's now actually a marketplace where people create beats just yeah. so they'll get bought by yeah. people that want beats. Right. And what you're posting is an investment in the company Correct. that provides that two-sided market for beats. Correct. So Got the it. company's called BeatStars. It's yeah. a company on Indiegogo. Yeah. People are investing into BeatStars. Yeah. So so interestingly, you've now circled back to having to create another two-sided market. It, how much You got it. How much is it I'm addicted. <laughs> uh but but it but you sort of this time around you sort of stacked the deck right you del you handpicked the first ones is that a lesson learned or is that what you were also you did the first time around yeah um well it's not a lesson learned it's required right okay so in the equity crowdfunding space we have to do diligence it's a requirement oh of the I see so you can't just let anybody post anything no okay Got it's it. legally not allowed I see okay. that would be the holy grail yeah yeah to yeah. allow the marketplace to figure it out. Yeah. But uh, according to the rules of Title Three, the portal, which we are, um, needs to be able to do the required due diligence and get right. the approval to post it up. Right. You know, I've 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 actually I'm really interested in this stuff. So I've made a few equity crowdfunding investments. I've poked around. I like I like this. I'm very interested in this stuff. And I, but I'm a little concerned. And, and that is that I look at the kinds of investments that seem to work pretty well. And the, the most popular that I seem to be restaurants, distilleries, booze of various kinds. Uh, they don't, which is sort of an asset a category that, that most professional investors would, would steer away from, often do steer away from. Is there a particular type of investment that seems to resonate best in equity crowdfunding, or do we not now know yet? Well, we definitely do not know yet. We're only three weeks into the business. Yeah. Um, we've already helped raise, you know, half a million dollars and all four have hit their targets. We purposely started with four very different types of companies because we want to ex explore these various types of verticals. The reason I think that what you're mentioning works well is not because it's booze as a industry. I think all of those are local plays. Mm -hmm. So they're really uh, resonating with their neighborhood and the people around them, people that like to patron that type of product or that, um, establishment. So I think that's a type of offering. And those are um, the specifics of that type. Yeah. So uh, that's why I think that resonates. I do think local will resonate very well with equity crowdfunding. Yeah, actually, it's your very, very good point. And, and of course, typically, 
you know, a local restaurant is not going to the conventional sources of financing, venture capital, that sort of thing. Correct. And it, and, and it really does benefit from having a loyal and passionate customer base that's also an investor base. So that may be why those have... Those and have how been. many people have really ever had the opportunity to invest into the local yeah. restaurant that they like? Yeah. Almost nobody. Yeah. So now all of a sudden it's like, oh, I love that place. Oh, yeah, I'll invest. Yeah. It's yeah. just like a new thing that hasn't existed. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 111. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton, and I'm speaking with Slava Rubin, who's the co-founder and chief business officer of Indiegogo. Uh, Slava, how big can equity crowdfunding be? In what time horizon? Uh, give us the, well, while we're just making stuff up, give us the five-year vision. What can what what do you think this can be realistically in five years? And now let's put it in perspective. It took us four years just to get the rules implemented so we could get started, right? Twenty twenty two, I think it could be quite big. Mm-hmm. Um Well well let me ask it maybe a slightly different way. Will it be a complement to conventional to conventional equity? financing sources will it be disruptive to conventional sources of financing or will it be a complement um 2022 i think it's a complement mm-hmm. a significant complement mm-hmm. it's one of the tools and tool belt of options yeah just like bootstrapping credit card maxing out your credit cards going to the bank for loans getting vc capital um Equity crowdfunding will be one of the major options that all companies will consider. And I think more and more companies will see the benefits. I would imagine by 2022, the caps have been significantly raised, which means that it's not a million dollar cap Mm -hmm. of a raise, but potentially 5 million, 10 million, 50 million, 100 million. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you're starting to get even bigger companies. Um, Bigger companies can use it now, right? You can get $20 million revenue, $100 million revenue companies doing Indiegogo right now for a million bucks. It's kind of what's a million bucks for companies that big. But um, once the caps are raised, um, I think it's a great way to get a lot of things out of it, right? You get the money, mm-hmm. but now you're also engaging your customer base to turn them into evangelists. They're getting to participate in the upside. You're being innovative. You're getting the marketing and promotion. You're getting a lot of benefits out of this one experience. Um, I think it's going to be a really important part of the financial stack. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask a speculative question. One of the frustrations that I have with angel investing, I've invested in probably 30, 30 companies, is is price discovery, is figuring out valuation and price discovery. It's a it's very much a horse trade. And on the current crowd crowdfunding platforms, it's it's basically take it or leave it. It's basically here's the offer, buy or or don't buy. Uh, investor don't invest at this valuation. Right. But I wonder if there's an opportunity to do some price discovery that is to allow the market to determine what the valuation ought to be. Is that a possibility? Is that an envisioned under the Jobs Act? Is it something you guys have thought about? It hasn't been envisioned in the Jobs Act as an actual tangible concept. But what I think you're saying is when you try to decide if you want to buy Cisco Systems or not mm-hmm. as a publicly traded stock, a lot of things that you can look at, one of the important ones is maybe some comparables. And what is the PE comparison or what other comparisons are there? So that helps for your price discovery in terms of how do you feel about this price? Well, but in that case, you've got 
you've got buyers and sellers in the market. And so you have an equilibrium price and that is the price. Uh, but in a, in a crowdfunding transaction, the company is offering. Right. Uh, yeah. For now, for because now. it's, yeah. um, it just started a few months yeah. ago. So I think for the, for now, title three says there can't be a secondary market. Okay. Eventually I think there will be a secondary market separate from the secondary market. I think as right now we have limited liquidity. Mm -hmm. So once there's more liquidity, you could have more comparisons. Yeah. So you'll have one bar offering at $10 a share and this other bar is offering at $2 a share, you know, based on the same amounts of uh, stock and whatever. So very, very different valuations. And you're like, Oh, why are these different valuations if it's the same revenues? Mm -hmm. And somebody will have to explain that. Otherwise the other one will get the better terms, the uh, better results. So I think that as there are more liquidity and there's more entrepreneurs that come up with uh, different innovations and that can obviously be done within the portal, or it could be done outside of the portal. And that's the beauty of the ecosystem because I think there's a lot of opportunities out there for people to step in and you know provide new product solutions. Are, are, there, are there any downsides? Actually, let me just be uh, not be coy about the concern. The, I wonder if there's any negative signaling. Uh, if, you're a, if you're a firm that does have access, would be one that might be able to raise venture capital. Is there any negative signaling if you run a, a crowdfunding campaign, a crowdfunding equity campaign? Are there any complications in terms of what it does to your future prospects? Or in fact, is it a positive? It's hard to tell. I mean, yeah. I'm very biased. Um, there are some challenges related with equity crowdfunding uh, because under the current rules, you can't set it up as a single purpose vehicle. So you have uh, multiple investors now added to your, to your uh, cap table. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the things I've been lobbying to have change. Um, that's, that's weird because, okay, let me make sure I understand the, the point. If you do a title three raise yeah. and you get 71 investors, you have 71 investors added to your cap table. Yeah. But if I'm, but, but if accredited investors make investments, say on angel list, they it's, form a separate LLC. It's a different experience. So under title three, you're not allowed to create SPVs. Uh, not yet. Okay. You will be able to, cause that rule has to change. Right. That seems like a major defect. Yeah, in the, and in the law. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, and then also that will influence your um, total number of investors, which can influence when you have to go public. Because you know, once you have two thousand investors, you now have to go public. You know, that's like the Facebook rule. Right. Um, but in general, I don't think there's negative signaling. I think people are going to be learning that it's very positive. Just like the example I told you about Sunny Vu, where he already had seven million dollars of VC funding, but he came to Indiegogo, and everybody was like, "Why are you using Indiegogo? You have seven. You're a serial entrepreneur. You have the co-founder. Sorry, you have the CEO, former CEO of Apple. Like, you don't need to be using Indiegogo. That concept of need, people just didn't understand. He was smarter than everybody else. He was using it for market validation, for promotion, for getting the customer data. People are going to be using equity crowdfunding with Indiegogo for many, many reasons, not just for can I get the money or not. And uh, I think there's going to be significant growth. Um, great. So I want to I just change the subject a minute. We have about two minutes left and ask what advice you'd give to entrepreneurs. Let's go back to the, to the product campaign, although I suppose, suppose the insights would apply to equity as well. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs in terms of creating the page, creating the offer to make it as successful as possible? Um, meaning if you're an entrepreneur on Indiegogo? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have tons of, uh, tons of data and have done, you know, well over half a million of these offerings. And 
you want to have good content. So that includes having a video and making sure that you're clear on what you're offering. You want to come off to a fast start. Your first week is the most important week of your campaign. And that's because this whole momentum effect. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you want to be able to tap your inner circle as quickly as possible. So don't expect the strangers to fund you first. No strangers can give you anything. Mm-hmm. Um, until your mom gives you money first. Mm-hmm. So if you can't, if you can't get your money to come, if you can't get your mom to come in the first week, you're in big trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and you want to provide updates. You want to keep content fresh and keep providing information. So at least once every five days, you want to provide an update. Mm-hmm. Do those same rules apply carry over substantially to the equity side? It's so early. We're three yeah. weeks in. The short answer is yes, but we're learning. And um, yeah. All right. Well. Slava, remarkably, we're out of time. That went so fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, so thanks so much for coming in the studio. It really makes a big difference to have you here. Thanks for having me. Okay. So to keep up with Slava, you can follow him on Twitter, at GoGoSlava. That's just GoGo, S-L-A-V-A. And you can also follow Indiegogo, at Indiegogo, I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O. I'm Carl Ulrin, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.